Good morning. Today's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat what is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do not give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am Christ, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, merciful Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this uh, so important and applicable text, even for today, Father, we pray that uh, you would take hold of our our mind, our thoughts, our intellect, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to rightly understand your word, to rightly divide it. We pray that you would take hold of our heart, our soul, our affections, and that you would enable us to, to humbly bow before your word. And Father, through it all, we do pray that you would transform us, that you would make us more like your son in every way. Enable us to take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul to rightly apply them to our own lives that we might bring you greater glory. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we live in a world, this probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. We live in a world and in a culture, particularly in the United States, that is filled with choices, right? Um, probably I'm going to guess that the people that went on this recent Guatemala trip are going to realize that in a big way, that particularly Americans living in modern-day United States, we, we live in a culture where we are just uh, filled with so many choices, so many things that, that uh, we can uh, choose from, 
in terms of entertainment, in terms of restaurants, in terms of education, in terms of occupation, um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And, um, you know, I, I say that just sort of comparing it to just when I was a child, we were limited uh, in choices, uh, far more than, uh, than we are today. Um, you know, I grew up in a world with, uh, with no internet and no smartphones. I know when I was a high school teacher, my students were shocked by that. You know, how did you survive without a smartphone? Um, but really, I grew up in a world with no internet, uh, no smartphones, no cable television. I mean, we, we had 13 channels on TV when I was a kid. And that's only if we could get our cousin to stand next to the TV and hold one of the antennas the entire time. If you didn't do that, then we only had five channels that we could, that we could watch. And uh, we, were, we were just limited in um, not just television choices, but just all of the various choices that we have available in the world today. But today, I mean, with all of the, uh, the, the streaming apps, with all of the, uh, with YouTube and all of the social media apps and the internet, I mean, the choices that we have today are endless. And not just in terms of entertainment, but when we talk about shopping as well. You know, when I was growing up, you were limited to the stores that you could get to, right? Whether you could walk or drive or take the bus or whatever the case may be. But now there are endless, hundreds, maybe thousands of online stores where you can buy things from any country in the world and have it shipped to your door like the next day. Um, We are inundated with choices all around us in terms of eating establishments. I mean, at least where we are, within a 15-minute drive from here, there's probably hundreds of restaurants you could choose some. It almost becomes difficult. Um, Again, when I was growing up, we had like the taco shop on the corner, and that was it, right? There was nowhere else to go unless you could drive all the way across town, and nobody uh, nobody wanted to do that. But I point that out because all of these choices and all of this freedom means that Christians are forced to ask themselves, or at least they should be forced to ask themselves more and more, is this something that I should be engaging in? Is this something that I should be doing? We know that we can do these things, We know that we are allowed to do these things. We know that the Bible doesn't forbid us from engaging in these activities, from watching this show, from shopping at this store, or whatever the case may be. But the question that we should be asking ourselves, is this how I should be spending my time? Is this what I should be doing with my life? Is this how I should be spending the resources that God has given me? This may sound like a silly question to ask, but it's not really. And in fact, it's what Paul is going to be dealing with in this text. That's why I said in the prayer that it's so applicable. Paul is going to be dealing with this very situation in the text, talking to the church in Corinth. You see, because Christians tend to not ask that question very often. And that, you know, that's true of myself as well. I count myself in that statement. Many Christians tend to think to themselves, well, I know that I am allowed to 
do this or do that or go here or go there. The Bible doesn't forbid me from spending my time in this way or spending my resources in this way. Therefore, I'm going to do it. And I don't really care what anybody thinks. I don't really care how this might impact other people. It doesn't bother my conscience. The Bible doesn't say that I can't. Therefore, I will and let the chips fall where they may. But that's not really the Christian approach. And that's what Paul is going to be dealing with in this final section of chapter 10. Paul begins in this section that we're looking at by making a point. Using two statements in verse 23, he's going to make two statements, but really he's making one point. He's sort of being repetitive. He's saying the same thing in two slightly different ways. And so he's really making one point. And just to let you know where we're going to go in this text, then in verse uh, uh, 24, Paul is going to sharpen that one point by providing a principle that is drawn from those two statements. So in verse 23, he uses two statements to make a single point. In verse 24, he's going to draw a principle. He's going to draw out a principle from those two statements or that single point that we can live by, that we should live by. Then in verses 25 to 30, Paul is going to offer two practical examples of how this principle can and should be applied in the Christian life. And then in verses 31 to chapter 11, verse 1, he will drive home that point with three practical applications. Three practical applications. So there's there's your outline if you are a note taker in terms of where we're going. And so he begins in verse 23, and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So here again, uh, again, some think that Paul may be citing a, uh, maybe a motto um, that was uh, um, used or expressed in the church in Corinth because he he makes a similar statement back in chapter 6, verse 12. There he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So he's, he's repeated that phrase four times now, all things are lawful. Thus, this has led some scholars to think that maybe this was some sort of a mantra, some sort of a motto that the church in Corinth uh, just sort of lived by, that, you know, we're, we're, we're Christians. We, we have the freedom. We've been freed from the law. We've been freed from sin. We can do whatever we want because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. So all things are lawful. Maybe that that is something that they uh, repeated in the church in Corinth. But his point is that all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful and build up. Not all things edify. And so again, this is, this is a point that is very applicable today, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't watch TV. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't watch sports all the time. 
There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't spend every Saturday playing 18 rounds of golf at the local golf course. But are those things helpful? Are those things going to edify your soul? Are they going to make you more like Christ? Are they helpful to those around you? Is it helpful to your family if you're a married man to be gone every Saturday on the golf course? All things may be lawful, yes, Paul says, but not everything we do is helpful. It may not be sinful, but it may not be helpful, and it may not actually build up or edify yourself or the church or those around you. Now, it's important to know that Paul is not contradicting himself, right? Because he just said in verses 20 to 22 that you ought not to eat food that has been offered to idols because simply by buying it, simply by eating it, you are in fact partaking in demonic practices. So Paul said, don't do that. But yet here he then says, all things are lawful. Right? So Paul is not contradicting himself because Paul also does not truly believe that all things are lawful, right? If you take that statement at face value, Paul doesn't believe that. Paul knows that activities which contradict the clear teachings of Scripture are not lawful, right? If you're a married man, all other women are off limits, right? So when Paul says all things are lawful, let's not take that to the extreme, right? Even in the mind of Paul, not all things are truly lawful. There are things that are forbidden by God's word, and those things are not lawful. So Paul is not contradicting himself, but even among those things which are lawful, right? Even among those things which are lawful, he wants them to understand that not all of those things are helpful, it may be lawful for you to do that, to engage in that activity, to spend your time or energy or resources that way. It may be lawful. It may not be sinful, but that doesn't mean that it's helpful. It doesn't mean that it is beneficial. Again, I think what Paul is saying is that just because you can as a Christian does not always mean you should. And we don't ask that question often enough. Often the only question we ask is, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Does the Bible say I can't do this? The Bible doesn't say I can't, therefore I will. And we don't give a thought to, is this actually helpful to me, to those around me, to my family, to the church? However, Paul himself is going to explain uh, what he says in verse 23. So Paul doesn't really need my help because as I said, in verse 24, he's going to sharpen that point. So he makes a point in verse 23 and now he's going to sharpen it in verse 24. Notice, here's what Paul means. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his don't just do what is best for you. Do what is best for those around you. Do what is best for those next to you. 
Do what is best for your family. Do what is best for your church. Do what is best for your co-workers. The church in Corinth, as so many Christians do today, I mean, if we're honest, the church in Corinth, as so many Christians do today, tended to do what was best for them. I can do this. And so I am. But it offends your neighbor. I don't care. The Bible says that I can, therefore I will. Or the Bible does not forbid me from doing this, therefore I will. Yet Paul will later tell them that this is not how Christians should behave. This is not Christian behavior. This is not Christian love. He'll say that when he gets to chapter 13, the famous love passage, right? He describes love, and one of the things he says in verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5, is love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Love says, it's not about me. It's about you. Love says it's not about what I want. It's about what you need and what is best for you. Love says it's not about how things impact me, but rather what will benefit you. You know, Paul lived this out in so many ways. In Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 24, this is... uh, has been my ministry verse for many, many years. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Paul says, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what people do to me. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I am going to be faithful to what God has called me to do regardless of what happens to me. Because Paul lived out what he taught in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. So also Jesus in the second great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others what you would have them do unto yourself. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth. Of course, that doesn't mean always giving people what they want, right? We can get confused with that. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you means, right? Well, I always want people to give me what I want. Therefore, I should always give others what they want right? If love is not self-seeking, if, if love is, is uh, putting myself last and putting others first, then doesn't that mean that we always give others what they want? No. I'll give you a great illustration that I know every parent can, can, uh, can resonate with, right? I love my kids. I adore them. And as a Christian, I am commanded to put them before myself, to treat them as I would want to be treated if I were in their shoes. That doesn't mean I'm going to give them Twinkies for breakfast every morning, even though that is what they would want. 
I don't say to myself, well, if I was them, this is how I would want to be treated. I would want my dad to give me the Twinkies. Therefore, I should give them Twinkies. for No, it's not good for them. So when Paul says love is not self-seeking, it means that even though my children may get upset with me because I don't give them what they want, I don't behave the way they want me to behave, even though they may get upset with me, I do what is best for them. Thus, verse 24 says that we should put the needs, the needs of others before our own desire and our own wants. Love, in the end, does what is best for someone else regardless of personal sacrifice. Regardless of personal sacrifice. Love does what is best for someone else. But now Paul offers two practical examples regarding how this principle might be applied. An example one is in verses 25 and 26. Notice, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice his language, eat whatever is sold. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions. So he's talking about going to the meat market. First century Corinth, you go down to the meat market, and there's all these vendors, and there's pieces of meat hanging. He says, just buy what you want and don't ask questions. Don't ask any questions about where it came from. Because remember that not all meat that was sold in the meat market came from an idol's temple. Some of it did. Some of it was just brought into town from ranchers who were just coming to town to sell their product. I just slaughtered a couple of bulls. I'm coming into town so that I can sell my meat and then go back. But unlike today, right, there wasn't all these labels that told you where it came from, right? We have this fascination with labels in modern-day America, right? Uh, we, 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 go to the meat, we go to the grocery store and we look for all these labels. No, no growth hormones, right? There's a label there. Right? No GMOs. I'm looking for, you know, I want meat that's got no GMOs, right? I want, I want chicken that was free range and not caged range. And all of these labels got to be there. But the first century world, well, the government didn't really care, right? The government said, look, if you're concerned about where the food comes from, then just ask. And if you don't think they're telling the truth, then don't buy it, right? It's it, it totally up to you. But they understood that it didn't all come from idols, from an idol's temple, and Paul says, don't ask questions. Just, just buy it, right? If you like it, just buy it, take it home, and eat it. But why, right? Why does Paul say that? Um, obviously, the first conclusion we can draw is it back, looking back at verses uh, 20 and uh, 22, 20 to 22, the sin there is knowingly partaking of food that has been offered to idols. But Paul here is now saying that as long as you don't know, don't worry about it. Just buy the meat and just take it home and eat it. Why does he say that? Look at verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He cites Psalm 24, verse 1. In other words, everything belongs to God in the first place. It doesn't belong to idols. It doesn't belong to the farmer. 
Everything belongs to God. Everything that we receive comes from God. Ultimately, right, James 1.17, all good things come from God above. And so Paul says, look, eat it with thanksgiving, recognizing it as a blessing from God. You know, he'll make a similar statement to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Paul there will say to Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created. In other words, there's going to come a time when these legalists are going to creep in. They're going to say, look, you can't do these things, right? You want to be holy to God. You really want to get to heaven. You got you to cut off all of these things. And you can't do certain things. And Paul says that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Everything is good. There is nothing, nothing in this world that is inherently evil or bad. We use the things of this world in evil ways. We abuse them. But everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So there... Paul tells us, Scripture tells us, that as Christians, we can enjoy whatever the world has to offer within the limits of Scripture, of course. We don't want to abuse what God has created. We don't want to use it in ways that it ought not to be used. So Paul says, that's what you do when you're shopping for meat, right? Just just take it, enjoy it. Ultimately, it comes from God. Anyways, don't ask any questions. So that's scenario number one. Here's scenario number two. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now, here's a different situation. The first scenario is you're shopping for meat. Paul says, don't worry about where it comes from. Just buy it. Take it home. Scenario number two you're invited by an unbelieving neighbor who invites you over to a 4th of July barbecue and they're going to be grilling brisket or whatever the case may be. What do you do in that situation if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go? Listen to what he says. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Don't ask questions about where it came from. Don't probe. Just be a good guest. Be thankful for your neighbor's hospitality. What may lie behind Paul's thinking here are, uh, well, the words and the teachings of Christ. For example, the golden rule, Matthew uh, 7, 12. Do unto others what you would have them do unto yourself, right? Uh, Be the kind of uh, guest that you would want your guest to be like if you invited someone into your home. Or Paul may be thinking what he will later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of the things he says in the love passage there is, love is not rude. Love is not rude. And so again, Paul is saying, don't ask questions about what is put in front of you. And we understand that, right? Because we wouldn't want our guests to come into our home 
and begin asking questions about, what, what kind of chicken is this that you're serving me? I mean, is this, this free-range or chicken? Because I only eat free-range chicken, you know, or these vegetables. Are these organic vegetables, you know, that you're putting in front of me? I'm not going to eat it if it's not organic because that's just, you know, you would think to yourself, you know what, just go home then. We wouldn't want someone to do that to us, so we don't do that to them. Paul is essentially drawing the same principle. Just eat whatever is put in front of you. Don't ask questions. Don't worry about it. You're not sinning. Again, I think it's important to note that Paul is clearly making the point that eating food sacrificed or offered to idols is only sinful when it is knowingly done. Right? When you're aware of it, you ought not to do it. And in fact, that is what he's going to say in the very next section in verses 28 to the middle of verse 29. Notice he says, but, which by the way, verses 28 to the middle of verse 29 is really a parenthetical statement. Paul sort of shifts for a moment because he realizes I need to throw in some information here. And remember that in the New Testament world, uh, the... Uh, um, being able to use parentheses did not exist, right? We have, we have different ways of writing where we can emphasize different things. We can italicize things. We can, we can bold things. We can underline words. We can put words in parentheses. Um, all of these um, grammatical uh, and literary devices were not available in the first century Greek-speaking world. And so many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that verse 28 to the middle of verse 29 is actually a parenthetical statement. Paul inserts some information here that he needs to address. And so he says, but, and, and I'll explain why I think that in a moment. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his conscience. So Paul says, you're about to eat something, and someone says to you, uh, your neighbor, if, if you're in their home, or maybe you're at the meat market, and you're thinking, I'm going to buy that piece of meat, right? And then maybe the shop owner says, oh, that's a great piece of meat. It's fresh. It just came this morning from the, from the idol's temple. Now Paul says, ah, okay, don't buy it, right? You shouldn't buy it, is what Paul is saying. And so you say, well, I'm going to get a different piece of meat. Well, why not that one? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I just, I want this one. I'm going to buy this one. And then the shop owner says, well, that's a great piece of meat as well, because that one just, stop, 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 stop. Just let me buy the meat, right? Don't tell me where it came from. I want to buy the meat and simply go home. Because Paul says it's not for the sake of your conscience, it's for the sake of his. But what does he mean by that, for the sake of his conscience? There is a bit of uh, debate here as to what Paul is talking about. The Greek word for conscience is the Greek word sunedesis, uh, right? And it is a word that doesn't just mean conscience in the way that we think of that. When we, when we hear the word conscience, the connotations that come up, uh, the word sunedesis is a word that also just refers to what goes on in the mind, a person's way of thinking. It can have to do with beliefs as well, but it's what goes on inside of a person's mind or their way of thinking, their way of processing or evaluating or judging information. Our English translators just translate that word with the word conscience in this context. So Paul says, not for yours, 
but for the sake of his. Well, what does he mean by that? The likely scenario is that Paul imagines, Paul is imagining an unbeliever, either in the meat market or your neighbor, who knows that Jews and Christians, you know, they have concerns about eating meat that has been offered to idols, and so they throw that information out at you, right? Oh, by the way, just thought I'd let you know that that meat has been offered to idols. Paul says don't eat it, because if you do, it may cause your neighbor or whoever is informing you to suddenly begin thinking about Christianity in a negative light. Oh, they're not, they're not really a, a people of convictions, right? They don't really live out what they teach. They're kind of hypocritical or, or all of these rules that they say they follow. Yeah, I guess they're not really, you know, sticklers about actually living out what they believe. And so Paul is saying, for their sake, don't do it. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm not going to eat that meat because it's been, I mean, it would be sinful anyways, right? Because Paul just said that in verses 20 to 22. But nonetheless, he also, now he's adding a second reason for the sake of their conscience, for the sake of the way in which this may reflect upon Christianity, upon the church, don't eat it for the sake of their conscience. So then, verses 29b and verse 30 pick up from the end of verse 27, right? The middle of verse 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? See, the second half of verse 29 is picking up from the end of verse 27. We say that theologians believe this, and I agree with them, because otherwise it's difficult to make sense. If verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29 is not a parenthetical statement, then it's difficult to make sense of what Paul is saying. Because he says, not for the sake of your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? But Paul, didn't you just say that in the beginning of verse 29, that for the sake of their conscience, that you shouldn't eat it? So what are you saying, Paul? And so, likely, verse 28, middle of verse 29, is a parenthetical statement And so let's read so that you can see what I'm saying. Verse 27, and then the middle of verse 29 and verse 30 together, and you can see how Paul picks up from the end of verse 27. And so he says, for one of the unbelievers invites you, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Parathetical statement, verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Right? So going back to buying food from the meat market, eating with such a neighbor's house, Paul says, just do it. Why? Because why should my liberty, why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? In other words, Paul is saying, don't ask. Right? Don't ask. Um, It's the original don't ask, don't tell policy. Right? Uh, don't ask and don't let your freedom be controlled by someone else's conscience. So long as we partake in the things of this world with thanksgiving, don't worry about where it comes from. That does not mean, however, as he's been arguing and he's going to here in the next few verses, that does not mean that we simply do not care about what others think. There's a balance, right? On the one hand, we don't want to be the kind of people that are always just trying to make everybody happy. Right? If this upsets us, I won't do it. I won't do it. We're going to always make it. 
That is exhausting. And Paul says, your freedom should not be controlled by someone else's conscience. Don't let the legalist in the world control how you live. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme and say, I don't really care. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what they think. Because Paul is also saying that that is not a biblical approach. And so he now brings it all home in verses 31 to 11.1. Notice. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Right? Notice the language. I try. There are limitations to what Paul is willing to do. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul says, do everything for God's glory. Well, what does he mean by that? Two things. Two things Paul means by that. Number one, strive to not unnecessarily offend. Strive to not unnecessarily offend. Notice verse 32. So whatever you, uh, so whether you, or verse 32, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, right? I think unnecessarily is the key to understanding this. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God because we do know that Jesus himself and Paul, but Jesus himself offended many people with his teaching and not just with the gospel as well. Many of Jesus' teachings regarding, for example, eating food with unwashed hands, the Pharisees had a fit over that. Why do you do that, right? That is offensive, To many Jews, Jesus, of course, explained using Scripture. Or, uh, for example, eating with harlots and tax collectors, that was offensive to many. Why do you do that? Right, That's not something we should do, eating with harlots and tax collectors. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He did come to bring peace to those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. But he says, do not think that my primary purpose was to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her father-in-law. The teachings of Christ often created division within not only the Jewish community, but even among his own followers. You know, one of the great examples of that that I always chuckle at when I read is John chapter 6. Jesus had this huge following. All of these disciples, right? What's a disciple? A learner. Yes, he didn't handpick them, but he had all these people that were following and they were learning from him. And then he goes into this teaching about eating my flesh and drinking my blood And the next thing you know, Jesus turns around and he's only standing there with the 12. Everyone else has left because they all said, this is craziness. Like, I don't know what this guy is talking about, but we're done at this point, right? The word of God does that. It not only divides unbelievers from believers, but it creates division even within the church. A classic modern example is when you have your Arminian pastor who suddenly comes to an understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then from conviction, he begins to preach that. Boy, that'll split the church. That'll offend people. What are you talking about? 
I chose for God. I don't, I'm leaving. We're leaving the church. But he's preaching the truth of God's word. Preaching and teaching the truth of God's word will often create division. Paul upset many people with his preaching and with his teaching and the topics in which he addressed. So the first thing he says, to glorify God means strive to not unnecessarily offend. Right? Jesus didn't unnecessarily offend. Paul didn't unnecessarily offend. But there were times when they did. Number two, what it means that everything we do should be for the glory of God is that we glorify God by seeking the good of others and not our self. Verse 33, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, clearly, we know that Paul was not the kind of person that said, oh, if this bothers you, I won't do it, right? Although he did say, I try to please everyone in everything I do within biblical limits, there were things that Paul knew he had to do. There were things Paul knew he had to say, things that he knew he had to teach. And oftentimes, he wasn't always trying to please. There, was, there were reasons why he was drug out of many synagogues and had many rocks bounced off of his head and ultimately ended up being beheaded in a Roman prison. And it wasn't because Paul was trying to please everyone in everything that he did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been beheaded. But Paul did not seek to unnecessarily offend. Rather, he did strive to do what was best for others, and oftentimes that would land him in hot water. We glorify God by doing what is best for others, even if it offends or divides. And this is what Paul and Christ were like. That's why he ends there. Keep in mind that these chapter divisions are not in the original text, right? So verse 1, you know, it goes with chapter 11, and sometimes we think, why are you including that here, Hexen? Because I do think that he changes subjects in verse 2. I mean, the reality is I think chapter 11 should begin with verse 2 and not with verse 1, because then he ends all of this by making this point be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying if there's any confusion, right, just look at Christ and follow his example, right? Christ didn't live his life saying, oh, I, I, I want to make sure that nobody is ever unhappy with me. You know, that wasn't how he lived his life. But he also didn't go around scratching his, his head saying, how can I offend people today? Right? He just preached the truth of God's word. Some people were attracted to that. Others were offended by it. The same is also true of Paul. So Paul says, look, if there's any confusion in what I'm saying, because there is that balance, right? Ultimately, Paul doesn't give us a formula, and that's the difficulty in this text. On the one hand, we don't want to be the people that simply cater to everybody. I don't want to offend anyone. I'll do, I'll do if, if anything that I do makes anybody unhappy, I'll just I'll try to cater to that. We don't want to do that be bound by others' conscience. But on the other hand, we don't want to be the Christian that says, I don't really care. I'm going to do what I want. And it doesn't matter where it lands. So Paul doesn't give us a formula. 
what he does is he says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Live your life for the glory of God. Strive to do what is right. Strive to do what is best. Strive to teach, disciple. We all teach in some, in some sense, right? Husbands teach their wives. Parents teach their children. We teach our neighbor. Um, maybe Christians from another church. We get into a theological conversation. So Paul is saying, strive to live your life in accordance with Scripture. Strive to do what is right. Strive to do what is best for someone else and not what is best for yourself. Be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Paul himself. In the end, Christians have freedom of conscience. We have freedom of conscience. But we must not use our freedom, but we must, let me rephrase that, we must use our freedom for God's glory and not for self-serving purpose. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, 